Hi, I'm Anthony Fury. Thanks for joining me for the latest episode of Full Comment. Please consider subscribing if you haven't already. The Ontario election has been a bit of a snooze in many respects. There really haven't been many issues that the parties have fiercely battled over, and the polls have remained the same throughout, with progressive conservative Doug Ford expected to win re-election, most likely with a majority government. But underneath that, there are some interesting things going on that need to be unpacked. Ford has managed to bring on the sorts of union endorsements that we used to think of being typically aligned with the NDP. What's happening there? Ontario also had some of the strictest and longest lockdowns of the past two years compared to similar jurisdictions. How has that changed the way Ontarians think of their relationship to government and therefore vote? Oh, and why didn't grassroots conservatives in Ontario at least try to give Ford a hard time or give him the boot over this stuff like they recently did with Alberta Premier Jason Kenney? What's the difference there? And why is it that the main opposition parties, the NDP and Liberals, have just been so painfully lackluster? Why did they fail to bring their A-game? Today's guest is Hamish Marshall. He worked as research director for Angus Reid Public Opinion. He's now a partner of the firm One Persuasion, and he's managed a number of political campaigns, including being national campaign manager for the federal conservatives in the 2019 election. He joins us now. Hey, Hamish, thanks for stopping by. My pleasure, Anthony. Yeah, I, I always hate to tee up something by saying, okay, we're, we're now going to talk about something uneventful. But, you know, Seinfeld's show about nothing, it was, I guess, one of the top rated shows of its time. So we can turn around and say there is actually a lot going on here beneath the, the main plot. There's a lot of interesting subplots. But before we get into all of those subplots, I mean, wh- what do you make of this fact? I, I'm just kind of surprised after all this, the strong passions and and anti-Ford stuff over the past few years from liberals, NDP, and just all the crazy things that have happened in our world and the lives of the past two years, that this election has proven to be something of, of lesser substance than I think a lot of us were expecting. You know, it's, it's really remarkable. I mean, I, I, I was thinking about this the other day, you know, every election we ever sit through, we have people telling us nonstop, this is the most important election in a generation, <laughs> the most important election in the century. Every, I mean, it's obviously not true because it can't be true of every election, but I've literally heard nobody say that this time. No one's even trying to make that, 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 that statement. And, you know, the polls are just, just flat. It's just incredible. You know, the conservatives are consistently eight, 10, 12 points ahead. It kind of bumps around a little bit like that, but it's pretty, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty flat. There's nothing going on. And uh, I think a lot of it comes down to uh, really two things. One is falling, coming out of the, the pandemic, a desire for stability from for Ontarians, a desire to sort of return to normality, a kind of a, a feeling mm. of, of, of throw every, of, of like, let's change everything, let's change government doesn't really exist. I think the pandemic played a big part of that. And, and I think the other big issue is just the complete uh, incompetence of the Liberals and the NDP and their inability to, to, to uh, uh, capitalize on any anti-Ford feeling out there. You know, it, it's such a good point. Because I've written columns saying we need inquiries and commissions into the COVID stuff. I think it's remarkable that one of the reasons Ontario had had such uh, severe lockdowns was our health system is just not what it's been chalked up to be over the past however many years. So, you know, we really need to have these conversations. But then to your point, people are frustrated. I'm a big fan of the band The Eagles. There's this great documentary out on them. I think it's still up on Netflix or Amazon or whatever. And there's a scene where they talk about how their song Take It Easy, it was their first big hit. And it became a hit. I think in part they said, because there's the Vietnam War, there's all this crazy stuff going on in Watergate, and people just wanted to take it easy. Like, they didn't actually want to be at each other's throats anymore. I, I think that's a huge part of it. I think people are just, they're, they're fed up, they're tired, the weather's getting nicer, 
people just things want things to go smoothly into the next uh, into the next few months. And look, there's definitely some people who are pissed off and mad and want a change in government, uh, but there's not enough of them right now. Yeah, how would you describe the the focuses of the different parties? I mean, I think it's fair to say the Ford government's focus. They're really talking about the economy. They're talking about infrastructure, those sort of core governance things, it seems. Yeah, I mean, they've certainly got some bells and whistles that you're right. They're talking a lot of infrastructure. We hear a lot about the 413, the Bradford Bypass, um, uh, some of these big projects, which are nice, tangible things to campaign on. But the really core message is steady as she goes. It's Hmm. things are fine. You want things to be fine. And we're the party that isn't going to shake stuff up. Things are, are going to be okay. And the message of a fairly radical change being pushed by the others is just not what Ontarians are looking for right now. Whether or not individuals have quibbles with certain parts of the Ford uh, agenda and some of the things they've done or haven't done, we're in this, this situation where people are saying, you know, things are, un- sorry, enough people are saying things are fine. And why would we mess with that? Why would we change everything? We just want everything to be normal and quiet. I want to spend the summer with my kids. I want things to keep going. It's going to be okay. Is there also something to be said for the fact that maybe the Ford government isn't as conservative and far right and what have you as liberal and NDP voices would like you to believe that they're a relatively centrist party, that they're kind of in line with Ontarians? Yeah, I don't, I don't think there's a radical agenda for change. This isn't the, the, the common sense revolution of 1995. Right. Um, there's very much, like, the message is steady as she goes, and you can't have a steady as she goes government that is doing radical things uh, for left or right. Like, that's just, those things don't fit. And they, I think this government really, really understands their value proposition and their lane, which is telling people that we're going to manage things in a competent, perhaps not super exciting way. And that's just fine. Um, and, uh, and, and by, by not trying to shake it up, that's one of the reasons we're not seeing, you know, big policy hand grenades or trying to do something, you know, like the budget that we had in the spring, it's a perfectly good budget, but it's not, you know, it's not the most exciting Ontario budget of my lifetime. And, but that's not, that's, that's, that's not a bug. That's a feature. Well, to your point about how the election has had a lot of nothing burger elements to it, I remember budget day coming out. And of course, for media, they treat it as a big day. It's like the royal wedding for them. And they go into the lockup or the virtual lockup, and then they get their stories ready. And then 4 p.m. or whatever, it all comes out. And here's all the big newfangled things. And this was like such a fizzle. They were like, oh, they're, I guess they're doing a bit of infrastructure, some hospitals, some schools. And then, oh, they've actually got a lot of deficit, kind of just like like before during COVID times. Oh, what, what, how do we, how do we spin this? How do we frame this? And they just kind of didn't. Yeah. But, but, but as I said, I think that, I think the, the Ford government really understands where the mood of, of the voters they have and the voters they need are right now and are delivering that sort of middle of the road uh, government. That's not trying, it's not swinging for the fences but that's okay. Like that, that's, that's what people want. People don't want overreach right now and they're not getting it. Hamish, are a lot of people going to vote on June 2nd? Is there going to be strong voter turnout? Uh, I, I think the turnout voter turnout is going to be lower. Um, you know, provincial voter turnout is always generally lower than what we see federally. It, and the most, the best predictor of whether turnout is going to be up or down in an election is whether or not there's strong 
feeling of time for a change. When, when, when that's true, whether it's conservatives or liberals or NDP or anybody in power, when a government's in power and people want to throw them out, people who are mad, who don't normally vote, who are engaged in the system, this is especially true in provincial elections, turn out and vote, you know, the people who vote one election in three or whatever. This election, that strong uh, uh, get rid of them feeling doesn't exist. And as a result, I think turnout's going to be lower. Now, Hamish, I know there was a lot of talk in the, I guess, 2019 election federally, which uh, you're very familiar with, and even the the past federal election in 2021, that Justin Trudeau had experienced a long five years, a long four years, however long it was, the idea that leaders are sort of wearing out their welcome and that the number of, say, scandals that the federal liberals had had was longer than you may typically have during a first term or, or longer than Jean Chrétien or Stephen Harper had in their first term and that this is going to wear on him. And I, I think it's true. It just didn't uh, prove such that it, it, it resulted in a change in government. And I feel like these COVID years, past two years, man, that's been a long couple of years. I mean, this has been a long four-year term. Uh, for Doug Ford, and he was on television every day telling you, you know, where you could and couldn't stand. I mean, talk about overexposure for him. Uh, but it seems like he hasn't worn that too much. No, I mean, I, I think, and he's, you know, he's not. He's 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 only doing a limited number of events in the campaign. Um, look, the, the, the he's not out doing media. I will say, just so every right. listener knows, we have put out requests for all three of the major leaders, and, and we were very. Uh, wanting to get them on the program, and Doug Ford, Andrew Horvath, Stephen Del Duca, uh, they would not, uh, they did not uh, agree to come on this program. And I don't think I'm per- particularly unique. I think they're not really doing media, hardly any of them. Yeah, I, look, but I, I think the pandemic sort of serves as two resets. It's, it, look, it's an entirely unique uh, phenomenon in Canadian politics, obviously, but there's sort of two resets in it. One was once the pandemic started, it was a big reset, both politically, we saw Trudeau's numbers move federally, we saw uh, Ford's numbers move move a lot uh, at the provincial level as well. There was a whole change when things started and, and people forgot about what had gone on before. And, you know, the Ford government had a pretty bumpy first year and that was just all right. forgotten. We'll focus on the pandemic. Now that the pandemic's over, it's almost kind of another reset again and a feeling of let's get back to just things being normal, whatever that whatever that means to different folks. But so they've sort of had two resets and that's, I think, done very well. And the pandemic, people generally think that the Ford government did a decent job on on the pandemic handling. Might be certain aspects that they'd like or don't like, but the broad consensus is that the Ontario government did a a decent job. So there is an anger coming out of that, except for amongst the people who are, uh, you know, there's there's definitely a small section of people who who are very, very mad about the lockdowns. And there's a section of people on the left who are just mad at anything Ford does. Um, but we, we end up in this situation where now there's sort of this new reset moving forward, or there's just this feeling, as I said, if people just want, let's just move forward. Let's not, let's not do anything to endanger, you know, what we've done and, you know, moving out of the pandemic, we sure as hell don't want to go back there, but let's just move forward and things are, are kind of okay. And so the government's really been able to profit from that, right? Number one, putting that, that rocky first year behind them. And then two, uh, putting, uh, you know, some of them perhaps missteps in the campaign when there was a backlash about locking down playgrounds and all that a little over a year ago, that's all far enough in the rear mirror as well. Talking about the Trudeau factor, 
Justin Trudeau made a campaign-style appearance with Doug Ford just a few days before the writ was dropped at an announcement. It wasn't a campaign event, of course, but they were making an announcement for something that involved provincial and federal funding, and they were standing there together at the podium. And then a few days later, the election starts, and Justin Trudeau is not going out on the campaign trail for Stephen Del Duca. I mean, what's going on there? Well, if he's not going to... Like, Trudeau is a very canny political operator. He doesn't want to spend political capital on 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 people who aren't who aren't likely to win um if he's going to go and engage in a full-scale fight with the government of ontario which is what would happen if he if he really started uh pulling out the stops to, to, to campaign against ford um there that is a narrative that would uh consume politics obviously during the election but probably have effects afterwards and there's a there's a price you pay for that uh even if you and and since it looks very, very unlikely that Del Duca would be successful. They're just saying that the price isn't worth the, the potential upside of a, of a Del Duca government, which is, I think, at this point with the polling, you know, an extremely low chance that happened. You mentioned a small contingent of people who are still very frustrated at Doug Ford for things that he did uh, during the pandemic. Uh, mostly, I'm talking about more conservative-leaning people who did not like the lockdowns. I know, to your point, there were people on the left who wanted even more and, and, and more elaborate and onerous restrictions. Back during the last federal election, which happened in the middle of the pandemic, we had Maxime Bernier's PPC. Uh, that did pretty well, I think, for an upstart party. Uh, talked about the crowds a lot, and they did get a lot of people out to their rallies. And in some writings, I mean, they got over 1,000 votes, not like the typical fringe party vote of, of 2,000, say. And, and I think... Uh, Maybe they didn't do as well as Max had hoped, but they did all right. Here in Ontario, what we have in this election is a new party called New Blue of Ontario. And then we also have another party, uh, an Ontario party. Uh, It's called that. It's called Ontario Party. The leader is Derek Sloan. Are these parties at all going to make any similar headway to the degree the PPC did federally? So they're not being polled a lot. Like the pollsters, some pollsters ask about them, some don't. General consensus of the polling is that when you add those two parties up, maybe it's four, maybe it's 5%. It doesn't all come from the PCs. Some of it uh, comes from uh, from other parties and traditional non-voters. So I'm not sure what percentage it would take for the PCs. Assuming these two parties combined get 5%, maybe that's three, two and a half, three percent come from the PCs. It's hard to say exactly. Um, look, this, this could be the difference in some tight ridings. Mm. Um, and and that, that's the question. And, and, you know, the question is, if the PCs are 10 points ahead of the Liberals uh, on Election Day, I don't think these parties are going to make much of a difference. If the, the PCs are 6% ahead of the Liberals on Election Day, and some of these ridings that they didn't think were going to be tight are now going to be tight, and they're going to be decided by 1,500 votes or 1,800 votes or 1,200 votes, and these parties can pull off 1,000 votes or 1,500, then you could see some, some, uh, some, some, some close fights going the wrong way uh, for the Ford government and some people unexpectedly losing. Right now, the polling indicates that I think they're sort of above the danger zone. But if the, if, it, if we see a contraction in the next week and that lead shrinks from, you know, nine points or whatever the average is today down to, you know, six points, that could start becoming a factor. And then there's some writings where, where unusual things could happen. Right. I mean, New Blue is interesting because they're very, they're much more organized than, like, than a party like this we're used to. Right. They're running candidates. They're running more candidates than the Liberals are. Right. Um, uh, and Ontario's Ontario Party is running candidates in over 100 ridings as well. 
Uh, Look, I live in Toronto Danforth, which is a safe NDP seat. The only literature I've had in my door is a new blue piece of lit. I haven't had anything Mm. from any of the main parties. Um, I don't think that's going to change anything in Toronto Danforth. I'm sure the NDP will will hold the seat. Uh, But uh, it's a... uh, it's a very, um, uh, they're, they're more organized and that has the potential to cause um, some, uh, some problems and some tight seats. So you look at a seat like, like Cambridge where you know, the, the, the leader of the New Blue uh, Party, their only MPP, uh, Belinda Karahelios, uh, the wife of the leader, uh, is running uh, for re-election as a New Blue candidate having elected as a PC last time. I don't think uh, uh, Ms. Karahelios is gonna get 4% of the vote. She's gonna get a bigger percentage of the vote. That's a seat with a, a bit of a liberal tradition. Is it enough? Is that split enough for the liberals to win it, or the PCs hold up against a stronger contender like that? Hard, very, very hard to say. But if you know we see a split in Cambridge, and the PCs don't win it, I wouldn't be shocked. They might just. But if the bleeds enough, they'll be okay. Same thing in a in a Chatham Kent Essex, uh, where um, uh, Rick Nichols. Uh, is running for the Ontario Party as the incumbent. I think he's more likely to, the PCs are much more likely to hold that seat there as well. But there are, there could be a few funny effects, but I don't think it's going to be enough across the, the province to make a huge difference. We'll be back with more full comment with Hamish Marshall in just a moment. Hamish, I said in my lead-in in the introduction, why didn't grassroots conservatives in Ontario get as frustrated with Doug Ford as grassroots conservatives in Alberta did with Jason Kenney? Now, that's only been a recent thing, of course. That was not in the middle of the COVID lockdowns. Uh, Jason Kenney getting the boot or, well, I guess just barely passing his leadership review and then acknowledging that it was not enough uh, and then saying, OK, I'm going to resign sending that letter out there. I, I think, and, and we did a whole episode on on Kenney's leadership review prior to the vote happening and it was interesting to see that the the party rules are very different between the UCP in Alberta and the PC party here in Ontario, in that I, I do remember when people were most passionate about the lockdowns and there was division um, among grassroots members and you know staffers and a bit in caucus that you didn't hear much about, but it was there, people talking about, oh, can we even do these sorts of things? And no, the rules didn't really allow for it in the same way the UCP rules did. What's your take of why there was such a different response? Because Kenny course had even lighter COVID restrictions than Doug Ford did, but the passions were even greater there. Is it just because it's such a different uh, political culture out there? Yeah, I think I think it's both a different political culture in the province as a whole and in the party specifically. I think like the UCP and the the Ontario PC party are very, very different culturally. Um, the, uh, the UCP is especially the Wild Rose uh, uh, side, which is a large chunk of their activist base, is very, um, what's the right word I'm looking for, very non-deferential to leaders. Hmm. Uh, they very much feel that the leaders uh, work for them, whereas the culture of the Ontario PC party has been much, much more around uh, deferential to the institution of the leader, whomever that is. You know, we saw a caucus during the, the Patrick Brown days that was infuriated by many things that Patrick Brown did, but didn't revolt against him. Um, simply because the culture in the party is, well, the leader sets the direction and that's the way, that's the way it goes. That said, and then in the, part, in the province as a whole, Ontario was much more accepting of the lockdowns uh, as a whole than Alberta as a whole, especially um, uh, outside, of, outside of the big cities. 
um, you know, rural Alberta is, uh, was, was very, very incensed at the level of lockdowns in a way that while people were certainly, some people were certainly pissed off here in Ontario, they weren't, um, uh, the, the level of anger didn't rise uh, to the same degree. Um, and I think that just goes to the political culture of the province as a whole. Um, and so Ford, you know, profited from that. The other issue, I think, is that the Ontario PC party, um, you know, having won in 2018, having lost for 15 years, was so uh, happy to be back in power, to be back in government. Mm. The, 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 the institutions in the party were saying, well, we're not going to mess this up. You know, we've won. Ford's the premier. He's the guy who beat Kathleen Wynne. He's the guy who brought us back into power. Why on earth would we mess that up? Whereas in Alberta, uh, there's a, a sense amongst some of the, the party that it's better, they would rather be, uh, you know, being in power and not doing the things that are at the top of their priority list is, is, is to them just as worthless as not being in power. Um, and that sentiment does not, does not exist nearly as much in Ontario. So I think it's primarily a cultural difference. Um, uh, and, and also a, uh, but also a timing difference. You know, the, 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 the UCP feels that it is the natural governing party of Alberta, even though it's only been around for a few years, but it's the successor <laughs> to the, to, and therefore being in government is, is the default and, and therefore take, getting rid of an unpopular premier or premier they feel is not doing the right thing right. isn't going to cost them government. Whereas in Ontario, the Ontario PC party is saying, we are not going to mess this up. Well, hold on a second then. Is is the Ontario PC party its own brand or is this whole government the Doug Ford brand right now? Is is, is he is he the entity? I mean, look, I, I, I think the party is much more, I think I think the government is much more around Ford than the PCs, uh, certainly than, than it's been in the past. Um, it certainly is the Doug Ford government. It's branded that way. Everything they're doing is that right. way. And they're, they're campaigning that way. But the institutions of the party are very, very happy to be back in government and are not interested in in causing trouble uh, beyond that. Union endorsements. Let's talk about those. The PC party has, I believe, seven union endorsements. Unions that typically would have endorsed the NDP or the Liberals, and it's my understanding that all seven of these did not endorse the Ford government in 2018. So this is a flip. They've won them over. I recently wrote a column about this phenomenon happening across North America. It's not just an Ontario thing where the Democrats, for instance, have a lot of problems with uh, the fact that they are losing blue-collar support, they are losing the working class, a lot of hand-wringing and, and I guess, soul-searching about what to do about all of that. How do you see this playing out in Ontario? Because it's quite something to see the NDP and the Liberals lose this support, lose these endorsements. Yes, the NDP still has uh, the, the teachers' unions, public sector unions, uh, but uh, not not the blue collar unions anymore. Well, I think I think you nailed it. I think I think the difference is that there's a huge division in the union world now between the public sector and the private sector unions, and the private sector unions. A large chunk of uh, working class uh, and uh, uh, voters and people typically represented by private sector unions are uh, open to conservatives and often vote conservatives, regardless of what their their uh, their, um, their their union bosses might tell them. Mike Harris always did very well with private sector union members, if if he didn't, if not with their union uh, leadership. Um, so I think a couple of things are happening. One is that. 
uh, this government has done a huge amount of, of genuine outreach to the unions to, to make them feel heard. Uh, whether they get everything they want or not is different, but they certainly don't make them feel antagonized. And I think you know, the Premier's done a lot of that. I think uh, Monty McNaughton, Minister of Labour, has done a phenomenal job of that uh, and made it a... Uh, a, a, a you know, made it a, made it a priority, and we're seeing a, a lot of the, um, uh, the the rewards from that. And I think the unions also recognize that their their membership is genuinely large, significantly aligned with the Ford government anyway. So going against their membership too many times begins to you know cause problems for them, right? So it's it was a e reasonably easy thing to do. The Ford government made it easy for them. Ford spent a lot of time courting them obviously made it a, a, a focus of McNaughton's. And in fact, it was, it was quite funny, Press Progress, which is uh, the media funded by the Broadband Institute, which is, you know, wrote a big piece complaining that actually the Ford government was actually really anti-worker and how dare they do certain things that, that hurt unions and how dare they fund, you know, non-union uh, projects as well. And, you know, it, it, it's come to that, like they're just whining mm -hmm. that, 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 that unions aren't, necessarily anti-Ford and that's that's the best they can do but this is yeah, they're, they're just criticizing the unions for doing the right. endorsement rather than doing the soul searching to go how can we right. win you back right that's exactly right and then on top of that the, the blow to the liberals and NDP by really the decline of the, what we used to be called the working families coalition you know the, the, the tens of millions of dollars that these unions spent in the you know the elections against Tim Hudak or even against John Tory uh, was a huge factor in the in the, in the liberal wins uh, in the last uh, uh, couple of decades, and the liberals didn't have to run the negative campaigns uh, to 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 demonize conservative leaders because they had working families doing a lot of work for them. So simply, and why did that collapse? Well, but I, I think it, I think a lot of I, I, I think a lot of the it, it collapsed because a lot of these private sector unions are saying, well, it's really not worth going to war with the Ford government. Right. But also, you know, it becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, Del Duca and, and Horvath not looking like winners means that, well, we're really going to spend all this money and, and <laughs> incur all the, all the ire of the government and then, you know, still probably lose. I don't know if that's a, a deal, something we really want to do. Right. Uh, and let's talk about the Liberals and the NDP not looking like winners. I, I mean, w what is going on here? It's it's really difficult for me to point out the things that they are promising to do, like the marquee pledges, whether it's consistent with their previous brands or some newfangled thing. It's like, well, what, what, what do they want to do? I can think of how Stephen Del Duca says, okay, we've got to add COVID immunizations onto the mandatory public school attendance list. And you're like, okay. I don't know why are you still talking about this. They, they really, I think, wanted to still talk about COVID and they timed it so poorly because people are just done. I remember when the election first launched in, I guess, the first days of April, uh, there were some campaign events that people were unmasked at them. There were candidates unmasked, I think, indoors and all oh, the horror. And then they were infighting each other on social media and liberal versus NDP or even some people within the liberal family or within the NDP family were critiquing their own candidates. I can't believe you risked you know, killing all these seniors by going on massive and you're like, oh my God, this is so embarrassing. Like it was a total not ready for prime time. And I wonder to what degree they just thought they could campaign on all COVID all the time. Yeah. I mean, I think in some ways they've become sort of COVID fetishists, right? Where they, <laughs> they, they, they just, they, they, they think the market was that Doug Ford wasn't strong enough on COVID, despite, as you pointed out, having some of the longest lockdowns on the continent. Um, and, uh, and, and that's completely out of step with the, where, the, where the majority of people in Ontario are. The majority of people in Ontario think the government broadly did a decent job on COVID. And so this is just not a winning issue for them, but it became sort of 
talismanic and a fetish for these parties on, on the, especially these opposition parties on the left for the last two years, and they just couldn't give it up. Um, you know, I disagree a little bit on, on sort of the, the shiny policy. I, I do think the one policy the Liberals have rolled out, and it's one of the reasons why I think the Liberals are ahead of the NDP, it has cut through, and whether it's, you know, a good idea or not is, is a different story, but is, is their policy of a buck a ride on, on transit? Uh, easy to communicate, simple, easy to understand, um, uh, appeals to people uh, right across the spectrum. You know, a lot of people use transit uh, who are, you know, a variety of stages in their life. I think that, I think that was a good policy on their perspective. It, it worked. It's cut through. I can't name a single thing the NDP is promising. Just yeah, me too. <laughs> I do this for a living and I can't. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, the, the usual sort of grab bag of NDP, you know, sort of soft left policy and nothing interesting, nothing inventive. Hiring a lot of nurses. That's one. Hiring it's like 10,000 nurses or something like that. Great. I'm, you know, like that's, that's fantastic, but not surprising at all. Not, not, not news. Um, and they, you know, really, really see, you know, so liberals do have that, that, that policy for them, that, 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 that Bucker ride policy, which I think is interesting and, and, and certainly cut through a little bit. And that's one of the reasons they pull ahead of the NDP. Is it winning but, people over though? Cause I must credit voters money. that they are getting smarter in terms of they're like, yeah, it sounds nice, but how do you pay for it? It's like when Doug Ford scrapped the vehicle registration fee, which I, I support getting rid of it, but it was so obviously a vote buying measure. I think a lot of people were like, oh, okay, cool. But like, I don't know, I know you're buying my vote. So whatever kind of thing. Yeah, I, look, I, I, I think, and this goes to the fundamental problem they have, right? What the, the Liberals and the NDP had one job in this election. Both of them had the same job, which was actually not to tear down Doug Ford. Their job was to become the anti-Doug Ford uh, uh, rallying cry, to be the one champion that, so that everybody on the, on the progressive side of the ledger knows if you don't like Doug Ford, you got to vote for whether it's Liberals or the NDP. That was their job, was to kill the other one, to push the other party down into somewhere into the low teens or middle teens or wherever so that they could become, they could get themselves up into the mid-30s and, 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 and fight for, for, for the government. And they've both singularly failed to do this. And that we saw some squabbling. And it's funny, there, we've seen NDP, prominent NDPers complaining that the liberals are attacking them. Oh, why are you attacking us? You're attacking Doug Ford. No, like the strategy here has to be put the other one in the ground so you can be the anti-Doug Ford candidate. And they have both singularly failed to do that. Maybe that liberal policy of, of a buck a ride is designed to bring over soft NDP voters. It's not a bad idea if it works. We'll see what happens in some of the transit-heavy Toronto seats that the Liberals need to win back from the NDP. That's what I'm going to be most interested in on Election Day, is what does a seat like St. Paul's do? What does a seat like University of Rosedale do? Can the Liberals reclaim some of those central Toronto uh, seats that, that by rights uh, they think are theirs uh, and that they're essential building blocks for them to move back into uh, important, uh, important stop? But they've both completely failed to do this. They, they've, they've misidentified their enemy and failed to kill, to, to kill the enemy that they need to. Hey, Mish, I want to get your thoughts on the future of Ontario politics and, and really the nature of Ontario politics. I think it was assumed for the longest time that the province is becoming increasingly leftward, moving on a leftward tilt. And, and we had in our heads the idea that this was a liberal, natural governing party province because we just had Kathleen Wynne and, and before that Dalton McGuinty in office for what was it, 15 years? You go, wow, 15 years. That is such a long time. Well, yes and no. The progressive conservatives governed from the 1940s until 1985 when the Liberals got in with one term under David Peterson. I mean, they, they were the 
big blue machine. They had a lock for decades in this province. And then Mike Harris and Ernie Eves in for uh, a number of years before Dalton McGinty came in. If Doug Ford wins another majority, is it just, okay, well, this is obviously his last term and obviously we're going back to liberal NDP after that because, you know, Ontarians don't really tolerate conservatives or are we seeing something different happen here? So uh, I believe that, that Ontario's political culture is fundamentally non um it's about it, people like a, a certain degree of just managerial competence and it's mm. not an extreme political culture with big swings where people people like uh, governments that are not uh, massively ambitious. Dalton McGinty government's reason Dalton got reelected a lot of times. Premier dad, uh, pretty boring. Dad, right? you know, but it's the same style back to... Uh, back to uh, Bill Davis and Robarts and all the rest. There's, there's a very much a sort of a, a middle Ontario voter, whether they live in uh, a regional centre or the suburbs uh, of, of Toronto or even in the in the inner parts of the big cities that just sort of wants, uh, doesn't want big swings. And they don't want the government to take big swings. They want a, a government that, 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 they don't want a government that's overly ideological, right? They want a government that, that's just going to deliver decent quality services, not tax them too much, thank you very much, um, and generally makes them feel good about themselves. And I think that that is a, uh, that that is where the median Ontario voter is. Look, there's some times where people are mad, you know, they threw out um, uh, 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 Bob Ray in 1995 because the government was a, was a disaster. You know, the uh, Eves government uh, was a sort of, tried to do that, but didn't really um, connect with voters in that way and was, and was thrown out. And when, 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 when the cost of living got too bad and the Wynn government began to look too ideological and too much of a mess, they threw, they threw that government out in a big way uh, four years ago. So I think there's this, this strand of Ontario managerial, let's not be too, let's not overdo it kind of government, which is appealing and they will vote for it until it's been there being in too long. They will continue to vote for a party that delivers that. And I think the foreign government is, is on track to do that right now. And, you know, they're not too fussed about which party it is that does it, especially if it's choice between liberals and conservatives. NDPers are seen as still a little bit of too exotic for large chunks of the 905, which makes it very difficult for them to, to win government. Hamish, I, I think we've just done it. I think we have shown that this is not, in fact, an election about nothing and that there's a lot of interesting undercurrents going on in Ontario after all right now. I think, I think there's some stuff, yep. <laughs> but thanks so much for joining us uh, for this conversation today. Much appreciated. My, my pleasure. All the best. Full Comment is a post-media podcast. I'm Anthony Fury. This episode was produced by Andre Prue with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and Amazon Music. You can listen through the app or your Alexa-enabled devices. And you can help us by giving us a rating or a review, and by telling your friends about us. Thanks for listening.